thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bukhari Sellers podcast. Today, we will be interviewing Yale School of Medicine professor and co-chair of President Biden's COVID-19 advisory board, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. We're going to talk about COVID, these variants, and why we still got some of y'all out there that aren't vaccinated. Laysai. But before we get to her, we have to talk about the news that Nicole Hannah-Jones will be joining the faculty at Howard University, along with Ta-Nehisi Coates. In case you missed it, after Nicole Hannah-Jones declined the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's tenure offer, she announced that she would instead join Howard University School of Communications and launch the Center for Journalism and Democracy at Howard University. This was after a misguided and arguably racist attempt to first deny her tenure at University of North Carolina School of Journalism, where after being embarrassed and pressured into doing what they should have done from the beginning, Chapel Hill blatantly extended an offer and played themselves. This was an obvious coup for President Wayne Frederick and a huge win for HBCUs. More importantly, this was a key lesson in knowing your worth and going where you're valued. I'm an HBCU alum, and I grew up in an HBCU town, And my father was an HBCU president, so I'm a little bit biased, but I hope the parents of prospective HBCU students, black academics and black higher education professionals consider taking their talents to HBCUs. We all know that our institutions aren't perfect, but what we do know is that many times they make the right decisions around the issues of race. And even when schools like UNC try to do their best, in the case of public institutions in red states, they're often governed by individuals who don't have our best interest at heart, who are elected and appointed officials and responsive to, in some cases, problematic mega donors like the one who tried to stop Nicole Hannah-Jones. You don't have to fight that fight at institutions like Howard, just like you don't have to worry about racist colleagues, blackface Halloween parties, or campus police who would harass you or bother you or do things that are unjust at schools like Howard, Morehouse, South Carolina, State of Voorhees. Let's support institutions that are a safe haven for us, and let's encourage our best and brightest to give their time, talent, and treasure to HBCUs, who are not only a refuge for our children, but also a safe space for the brightest minds. And that's that on that. Now on to our interview with Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. 
and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is a special day. We've been trying to have this conversation, and I am so excited about having a conversation with one of the smartest people that we know, Dr. Nunez Smith. Welcome to the show. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. What a compliment back at you, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) We start each of our episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. Walk us through the arc of your medical career, particularly the moment when you decided that a focus of your clinical practice and your research would center health equity and the healthcare experiences of black and brown communities. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, I'm a practicing internal medicine doc. So I say it's all adults all the time. And (laughs) it is a great honor, right? It's the it's the deepest privilege to be on people's journeys with them. You know, I do inpatient medicine. So I take care of those folks who are sick enough to require being in the hospital. And it's a tough time for most people in their lives. And to be there alongside them and their family members Uh, It's a great gift. Try not to squander that. And I certainly try to teach the next generation just how impactful we can be in those moments, both in terms of our clinical knowledge, but that greater knowledge too, right? That sort of humanity, the empathy, the understanding and recognizing all our patients come from, you know, communities and families and really important social contexts. And so, you know, for me, I grew up in one of the, the territories in the United States. I grew up in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Just a beautiful spot. If people haven't been there, I really I love St. Thomas. I am a big I'm a big fan of. Yes. Uh, of. Yeah. The, the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas. Beautiful place. Beautiful, beautiful place. And amazing people. Right. And, you know, but we had struggles there and continue to around our healthcare system and services and. Uh, you know, we're a community of black and brown people predominantly. And so just early on, I got shaped by those experiences, understanding people in my family who were getting cut down, you know, early and not fully understanding why, but hearing it had something to do with not enough doctors, perhaps how some of the doctors treated people, other things really shaped me. So, you know, even as a six-year-old, I said to my family, I wanted to be a physician and, and really stuck with it. And You know, I had my own personal experiences as I went through my training, got to see patients, just suffering people not fully recognizing and understanding. I think the structures out there that drive people's health and access to high quality health care. So I don't think I had a choice, really. You know, once I kind of got into practice, uh, I felt it was deep responsibility and obligation to be focusing in on those communities that have been marginalized, minoritized, medically underserved. And for our country, that means black and brown people. What is health equity? I mean, for listeners out there, we have mm-hmm. a lot of these words that are floating around, uh, you know, on TV all the time. We throw out equality and equity. We throw out critical race theory. Yes. That's a whole nother show. And people yeah. just don't know what the hell they're talking about <laughs> half the time. So what what is health equity? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And sometimes the, the language can trip everybody up. You know, for health equity, or say that is it's about opportunity at its fundamental core health equity is opportunity for everybody to achieve their full potential right for us to recognize the structures that have inhibited quite frankly equal access to resources and opportunity it's a moment to remedy and correct it and so health equity talks about health care which is an important conversation in our country but also everything else that we know drives health ultimately right so thinking about your housing right your access to not just food and calories, but nutrition, right? Yes. Access yeah. to education and therefore economic opportunity and security. So, 
you know, health equity for us, I think this is an important moment for our country. We can't talk about it as something aspirational and theoretical and wouldn't it be lovely to have, right? It's an imperative. It's absolutely mission critical. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's never been more clear than in time of COVID that if we don't focus on one another and everybody's full recovery, none of us are going to recover. Speaking of COVID, I know this may be obvious to some, but can you just talk about from a very high level, the differences in the way that we're approaching COVID in the Biden administration versus the Trump administration? Yeah, you know, I think it's really tremendous where we are right now that we had vaccines and that the vaccines were able to be accelerated. Mindful now, no steps skipped, right? But we were able to get to getting those vaccines that work uh, and have been safely administered. That is key. But what we need and needed when we took over in the administration was a vaccination strategy, right? We always mm-hmm. say vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations do. Uh, and you have to be intentional and deliberate. You know, we're talking about the whole country there, but certainly we talk about equity. You just, it never happens by default, right? So you have to make sure that the plans are in place. And so, you know, the president revealed day one, the national strategy for combating COVID-19. And that's what was needed there. There, you know, there wasn't one. We didn't inherit one from the prior administration. But, you know, it's forward looking. There's lots to do. And executing on that national strategy has been top of mind for the president, the vice president, the entire administration. And within the first three weeks of the administration, the president stood up several direct federal vaccination channels, right? So supplementing the work done by states and locals, absolutely. But importantly, these federal channels, each one with equity at the center. That is important. And that's, that's different. I mean, we, we had, we, you know, COVID uh, for many of us during the Trump administration will always be remembered as the imagery will be president of the United States. We're breaking news, just being escorted out of the White House sickly headed to uh, headed to the hospital because he was suffering from COVID himself. I want to talk about variants. Yeah. I mean, I, while I have a government official, I want to I got I want to talk about two things with government officials. One is variants. The other are UFOs. You can't help me with the UFO discussion, but I'm going to have that conversation <laughs> with somebody. Uh, can you explain to listeners what a variant is? And exactly what is the Delta variant and what specifically about this variant concerns medical professionals like you? Yeah, no, absolutely. We are watching these variants. So again, just in terms of, right, what is a variant? What are we talking about? You know, the viruses, all viruses, they mutate all the time. That means they change, right? They transform. They're trying to get more efficient, right? Better at what they do. So we always know that that's a risk. It's going to be with SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, just like with any other virus. The challenge is that some of the mutations are going to be ones that are of clinical significance, right? And when we're talking about SARS-CoV-2 and COVID, what that means is some of those changes in the virus are going to make it easier to transmit from one person to another. Some of those changes might make it more likely to cause really serious disease. So we're always paying attention. There are several variants that have been identified already. We're talking about Delta variant today. Uh, that's a variant that was first described um, in India. It's here. It's around the world, really. We found. I mean, it, it's ravaging. It's ravaging Israel. And Israel was. Israel, it, it was, the UK. I mean, we have yeah. to learn the lessons from across uh, the sea and, and see what's going on, especially young people. Right. So that's a real concern. When we look at the UK, we see people 12 to 20 years old really carrying the brunt with Delta variant. It's well on track to become the dominant variant here in the United States. 
So I got to say that again, right? Well on track to become the dominant variant here in the United States. And we know Delta can be transmitted. When I said a clinical concern, CDC says this is a variant of concern. It can transmit more readily person to person. That's bad. And as well as it can cause worse disease. So we have to track it. You know, in uh, in the U.S., the vaccines that we're using, particularly that's what my that was my next question. Yeah, go so for I, it. I I got Pfizer. So am I good yes. with the variant in Pfizer? Because you know Pfizer, Moderna, and they uh, long distant cousin Johnson and Johnson. You know, we we all got these vaccines. Most of us do. Are we cool against the variant with these vaccines? Yeah. Well, the good news that I say to people is. The, the evidence is strong, particularly for the mRNA vaccines, that's the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that there's a high degree of protection conferred against Delta. So basically, yes, right, if you've been fully vaccinated. And I want to just take a minute to say to people, because, you know, I know some folks who got one, right? One, oh, yeah. yeah, one. They got Pfizer, Moderna, they got the first one and they said, you know, I'm, I'm good. And I'm just here to tell people it's not going to protect you. Right. And that's so, right. That's like that's like taking the bread without without the blood. Like you can't just ta- you can't just have the wafer and don't dip it like that. Just <laughs> it, it, you got to have you got to have both. Amen. Right. You got to have both. And so if you only have one dose, we're down to like 30 percent. And when we look at effectiveness, so, you know, you want, you don't want that. So definitely get that second dose. If you've got Pfizer, Moderna, you got to get that second dose really critical. And then fully vaccinated, remember two weeks after that second dose. So I see some folks who kind of walk out after the vaccination and think it's, you know, masked off and everything, but you got to get fully vaccinated. So really encouraging people. I always say, you know, the vaccination saved lives. But if you're still looking for additional reasons, like the Delta variant is one to go out and get vaccinated if you haven't already. And certainly now we see people struggling with long COVID and these debilitating effects, you know, lingering young people stricken down. Yeah, my daughter, my yeah. daughter is 16 and she she wasn't able to taste or smell for like two months Yeah. Uh, after after COVID. Yeah, um, we see folks like weak and athletes and others who have an issue with balance. So it can really range and you never know. And it's a gamble we don't have to take. So, you know, absolutely watching Delta, get vaccinated. When do I have to get my booster shot or will I have to get a booster? Because vaccines wear off, don't they? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. You know, certainly as an internal medicine doc, I talk to adults about vaccination all the time. In our country, we've lacked a adult vaccination program. So I think this is an opportunity for us to revisit that because before COVID-19, there were many vaccines we recommended for people, including things like influenza vaccine, which we know you have to take in an annual, right? Every year basis for that to be effective. You know, the science is still in motion around when Mm -hmm. people will need boosters. Um, Certainly from the Biden-Harris administration perspective, we're planning for all the scenarios. You know, it's really likely that there might be some groups who need the booster before others. You know, we think about age, for example, mm-hmm. and that immunity might wane first there. Of course, we're talking about boosters with the same things we've been getting. Just another point of clarification. Some people say like, are we changing the vaccine formula, right? against some of these variants and other things. So all things are, are absolutely being considered. The administration is going to be well positioned regardless of where the science takes us. Always, of course, following the science, the evidence, the data. Oh, that's so refreshing to hear that science matters. What would WWFD, what would Fauci do? Yes. I wanted to, yeah. let, let's talk about kids, kids for a minute in vaccinations. There was just some news about heart inflammation in children who received the vaccine. How do we process that? And what's your advice to parents with children who are eligible for the vaccine 
and are on the fence about getting their child the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely right. I'm I'm a parent too. I talk to lots of parents all the time. I mean, you are as well. So there are lots of folks in their houses now around the kitchen table having the same conversation. So what you said is that, you know, with the evidence that's come in, people have to keep in mind, of course, the millions of shots that have been given. But certainly there was a signal. The FDA recognized it, uh, as did the CDC. Another note there that our surveillance systems work in this country. That's positive. And that we, again, guided by science out of abundance of caution, people take deep dive looks at the data. So these heart conditions, inflammation of the heart, myocarditis, some cases of pericarditis as well. These are big words that sound scary. People, you know, recover from from these conditions. Really important to say this was found in some folks who are younger, a little bit more evidence uh, in males. But again, overall, few cases. Um, And again, people on the road to recovery. What I want to bring up for folks is We often talk about kind of the vaccines versus nothing, but we have to talk about the vaccine versus the virus, right? That's the choices Mm. we have in our country right now. The virus infection with COVID-19 causes these same conditions and often more severe versions of myocarditis, pericarditis, and others. So we always use this phrase, right? The benefits outweigh the risk. So people need to keep in mind what are the risk of vaccine versus the risk of the virus, right? And the risk of the virus are real. We're seeing young people in the hospital. The CDC released a report showing that in our country, that's who's getting hospitalized now are younger people. Um, I know as a parent, I'm grateful, right? I've got kids spanning, right? One child just turned 12, so we're getting vaccinated. Mm. Now the twins are only eight, right? So we're eager and waiting for that. So that was my next question. So when will that, when do you think or... Where is the science pointing us on when younger children will be able to be vaccinated? Yeah, so really critical for people to know that the clinical trials guide these decisions, right? People, the the manufacturers have to submit evidence to the FDA showing that they have tested the vaccines, the vaccinations in the age group that we're talking about. So we had those data for 12 and older. That's where we are. The clinical trials have been ongoing for those younger children. You know, some of the best estimates out there, I'm not here speaking, of course, on behalf of the manufacturers. So it's on their timeline to conduct the trials and get this submitted. But you know, perhaps even by the end of the calendar year, we'll have some evidence around uh, younger children. But I reminded everybody that right now, today, everyone 12 and older is eligible for vaccination in the country and the vaccine supply is there. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. That's dope. So talking about the vaccine supply, maybe you can help me dig in a little bit to the Biden administration strategy around vaccine diplomacy. I mean, we have some really cool words that we are coming up with these days where we would buy millions of doses of the vaccine and distribute them around the world. Who are the key global players that the administration would work with? And how do we ensure that the vaccines actually get to our friends and African countries like Liberia, for example, um, where vaccination rates are exceedingly low and vaccine supplies are almost non-existent? How will the administration decide which countries get to the front of the line? Yeah, no, you're, these are phrases that we didn't have, you know, a year ago. You're right. Vaccine <laughs> diplomacy, what does this mean? You know, so so when when I talked earlier about having a a, a strategy, right, a national plan for fighting mm-hmm. COVID-19, this is one of the goals. This is goal seven, is making sure the United States is reclaims its leadership role uh, in the world, particularly around issues of, of global health. It's never been a question, right, that this is a global pandemic and we need global solutions. One of the most powerful tools in the toolkit is vaccine and vaccination. So we have to make sure prioritize people around the world are getting access. Really importantly, something President Biden said I want to lift up here early on is, you know, we're not using vaccines as a political tool or weapon. Right. The decisions about where vaccine goes and who gets vaccine is based in public health. It's just so important because you see some other countries who are trying to like curry favor by yes. saying, you know, you I do this for you and you do for me. And this is not how the United States is approaching the global leadership and responsibility. Working really closely with COVAX and just other institutions, making sure this is a coordinated global effort, but already millions of doses going out the door every week uh, to other countries with an eye, like you said, to to the countries that would otherwise really be at the end of the line. You know, we know what is true everywhere else in the world, you know, from what's true here, that those who are most medically vulnerable need to get vaccinated early and first, whether you're talking about age or those who are at risk because of their work, healthcare workers and and others. And so taking that same approach, looking around the globe, uh, getting the world vaccinated. It's really tremendous when you think about where we were just a year and a couple weeks ago that, yeah. you know, we have in the country now over 70 percent of folks 30 and yeah. older with their first shot on the way to vaccination. When we look at senior citizens, 65 and older, you know, we're up around 90 percent having had a shot. So just really tremendous, able to now help on the global front, even even more and greater. But, you know, some folks I want to clarify this, too, because some people say, oh, the supply from the U.S. is going abroad. And that's not the case at all. The domestic supply here is well secure for everyone to be able to get vaccinated. And the president's leadership has made sure that there are additional doses now available for our global community. You know, you you said you said two things that I want to touch on as we kind of come come to a a close here. One of those things was, you know, people are going back to work Uh, around Labor Day. We expect people to 
get back in their offices. And you're going to have some people who only got one dose, some people who don't have any vaccines, but they're walking around maskless. What's your advice to employees on how they can protect themselves? And and what steps should employers take uh, to create safe workplaces for their employees? As everybody, listen, if somebody else signs your check every two weeks, by Labor Day, you're going to find your ass back (laughs) at the workplace. So... What's your advice to these people and employers? Absolutely. Let me tell you, this back to work question is a biggie, right? We'll have more conversation than that. The CDC, of course, will have guidance. I expect to to see that emerge too. Look, if you're unvaccinated, you're at risk, period. And remember, vaccination is that fully vaccinated. Um, And so that's two weeks after that second dose. So it's really unfortunate because, you know, what we always say is if you're unvaccinated, you still have to, of course, be wearing your mask, doing all the other mitigation things. There's a lot for employers to do. We expect responsibility to be shared there. Certainly in this vaccination space, what we say to employers is make it easy for your employees to get vaccinated. Right. So whether we're talking about something like paid time off. Now, President Biden has made sure that For those who have small, medium-sized businesses, there's a federal tax credit, so your employees can get paid time off, not just for the vaccine, but if they have to recover from any of those mild-anticipated side effects, like, got to do that. If you're a larger employer, you know, step up and do that. So that's one thing employers can do. There's also a partnership now with the American Hospital Association. Really grateful for all these collaborations. This is a whole of society approach to getting us on the other side of the pandemic. But, you know, employers, you can host a vaccination site right at work so people can get vaccinated at the same place they work. Right. So this is really key to think through all of these different ways to connect employees with vaccine as step one. And then making sure, of course, that all those protocols are in place following a lot of the guidance the CDC has already issued, things like air quality and ventilation and, and checking all of those. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I've gotten my my email. I'm, I'm still working at Yale. I've got my email about being in the office. I think a lot of people are starting to get their communications, going to be back to work. So yet another reason, of course, for people to get vaccinated now. For my last question, I, I gotta. It's a. I have to ask this setup question. But what is herd immunity? Oh no! <laughs> so recovery. Yeah, absolutely. This is like one of those other phrases that has just been wildly. <laughs> but everybody, separated. you know, everybody, everybody know what they're talking about when they say herd immunity. Apparently, you know, you just go and sit in a place and everybody breathe on each other. <laughs> and we come, we come out and we're better. So, what exactly is it? As I set up my final question for you today. Yeah, absolutely. So let me tell you what it is. And then let me tell you why we shouldn't be overly focused right on this idea. So, you know, herd immunity is about making sure that there are enough people who have protection against, you know, in this case, a virus so that those people who cannot get vaccinated will be protected. Right. So that you are able to get the transmission down to a level that those people who can't. And we know that there are people out there who can't get vaccinated. That's why this is such a really a moment to step up, an act of kindness and love, not just towards ourselves and our families, but our broader communities, right? So we often talk about herd immunity and you'll see those numbers vary. There's a lot that goes into what that sweet spot might be, you know, the 70% to the 90% to all of that. But what I always say is when we talk about COVID-19, we're talking about something that is local, that is hyper-local. Transmission is at that community level. It's about who you hang around with, right? At the end of the day is who's in our social network and community and is that group vaccinated? We're trying to get everybody vaccinated. So it's not, there's not a number at which we stop and we say, okay, we've gotten to this number, so we don't need to vaccinate anymore. We're trying to get everybody who medically is eligible 
to get the vaccine. It's free. It's never been easier, or more convenient. And so even as we talk about herd immunity, I'm like, our goal is everyone. And we're going to keep on going until we get as close to that but as possible. We have a, but we have about 43% of Americans who are vaccinated. And in some places like Vermont, they're, they're almost 70%. But then you have the numbers around 36% in South Carolina. So we're seeing some vast differences in state vaccination rates in the U.S. How does the Biden administration strategy account for some of those places like South Carolina and some of these other decently red areas that really don't have clear plans for addressing real access issues in our rural areas? And there's also some real hesitation issues as well. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We see something that's uneven. All right. So if we look at kind of um, uh, to your point, when we look at adults in the country, you know, we're 16 states, D.C. and going that have already gotten 70 percent of their adults at least one shot. But then there are many places where that's not yet the case. Right. So the work doesn't stop the administration um, from the beginning. Again, having stood up, if we hadn't had these, I, I, I we might even be looking at something worse. But having direct federal vaccination channels and programs, the president has spoken directly about access, making sure there's child care, there's transportation. We talked about paid time off. You know, the pharmacies staying open late, just lots of strategic key partnerships, uh, many creative incentives that you see. And there's actually a national public education campaign as well that's been launched to speak to people who are deliberating and have questions. So the federal government is doing a lot, sending resources directly to community based organizations, federal uh, sort of faith based organizations doing a lot on that federal front. We'll continue to do that in partnership with states and locals pushing, pushing on this. You know, the community core has been invaluable. Um, up now over 10,000, that's an underestimation of community partners who oh, wow. are working closely with the federal wow. administration to get the information out and get people vaccinated. So lots to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is that collaboration with the local leaderships. It's going to be hyper. It's going to be door to door, right? We talk about rural. We have a relationship with rural uh, health health centers and clinics as well. But it, it's that canvassing. It's going door to door with people who are trusted and trustworthy in community. So absolutely still more work to do in areas where we see that lagging vaccination rate. Bakari, we are worried about localized surges. I feel smarter after talking to you, and I hope that people will now go out and actually get their vaccine. I had one of my good friends who's in uh, Massachusetts uh, just talking about you know, should they get the vaccine um, because they had COVID and they had the antibodies? And I was like, man, I ain't no doctor, but the answer is yes. The answer is yes, you are. That's right, Dr. Sellers. That's right. Go out and get, even if you had COVID or think you had COVID, you're going to wait, you know, 90 days at least there since your COVID uh, positive test. But please go. That's why I said when you get that natural immunity, we don't know how long or how strong. So still go get vaccinated. I'm grateful to say that everybody in my family who is eligible for a vaccine has been vaccinated. We had lots of conversations, had to talk to the cousins a bit. I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure. Because black folk, black folk were like, look, you're not about to put this 5G in my that's arm. That's right. That's right. So we've had lots of conversations. But, you know, it's really it's really what we got. We got to do. We got to connect ourselves with with the promise of a, of a better tomorrow. Vaccine is part of that. If you want to be in these streets, get your vaccine. Thank you so much, Dr. Nunez Smith, for joining us on the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Live today from Disney World, of all places, headed to Universal Studios. Pray for me, but also pray for Dr. Nunez Smith and all the great work she does. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Be well. 
Thank you for tuning in. And before I let you go, I have to shout out Eric Adams, the Democratic nominee for mayor of New York City. In a hard fought race, Adams put together a working class coalition across races and boroughs and delivered a victory in a crowded Democratic field. While Adams' victory is a notable footnote in the challenges that progressives encounter in major races, Reports that progressives are doomed in New York City, that, well, that just ain't true. New York City still elected a progressive DA and a progressive comptroller and a progressive public advocate and is one of the most progressive city councils in America. So even if Adams himself isn't necessarily a progressive, this is still very much a progressive city where Adams will have to govern in a manner that's at least responsive to progressive voices and interests across the city. So New York is still a laboratory for how the various factions of the Democratic coalition can coexist. And we wish them well. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys on Monday. Have a great weekend.